Uh, If you have your copy of the Scriptures, I would ask that you turn with me to the 5th of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, obviously we are continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Tonight we're going to be looking at verses 38 through 42, and I would ask that if you have uh, the ability that you would please stand for the reading of the Word of God. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38, to the words of the living God. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, Father, we we thank you for this Lord's Day. Father, we thank you that you delight for us to draw near to you through worship. Father God, it gives us great joy to be a part of this work and of this experience Lord, we ask that you would hear our sacrifices that we offer up to you, that they would be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight. Lord, we confess our sin. We trust that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin. And Father, as we move on towards the part of the worship service where rather than us singing to you, we we hear from you, dear God, we just pray that your grace would be with us, your grace would be with the preacher who is merely to be a vessel communicating divine truth. Father, we pray that you would work by means of your Holy Spirit, that the hearts and minds of of the congregation tonight would be opened to receive spiritual truths, to be blessed, to be conformed to the image of your Son. It is in his beloved name we pray. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. So we continue our studies in the Sermon on the Mount uh, tonight, and we will be addressing the topic of retaliation, uh, retribution, as well as kindness, graciousness, and generosity, uh, and how Jesus would... would instruct his followers to be people who are quick to forgive, uh, people who are not ones who take vengeance into their own hands. Now, the format's obviously going to be very similar to what we've seen in Matthew chapter 5 up to this point. Jesus is going to introduce a Jewish law or perhaps a Jewish teaching, and he is then going to critique how that law had been abused by the scribes and the Pharisees, and, and Jesus is going to tell us truthfully how he would have citizens of his kingdom to live. So in verse 38, Christ says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This law 
uh, really this concept of an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. It's, it's known as the lex talionis. Lex talionis, it's a Latin phrase. It means law of retribution. And this concept of eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, it's found in at least three different places in the Torah. Torah is, um, means law. When, when, you, when we say Torah, we're referring to uh, the books of Moses, the first five books in your Bible. And, and it's found in three different places in the Old Testament law with you know, some variation as, as to the wording in each place. But what is going to be important for us in our interpretation tonight is to recognize that when God gave this law, it was a law that specifically related to the penal code in the nation of Israel. This was how judges, the governing authorities, were to determine the punishments for various crimes. And so eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, what it means is, well, the punishment should fit the crime. Uh, It is crucial for us to recognize when we get into this passage that eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, this was never, never a a prescription for how private citizens were to behave in their personal lives. Now, although some modern ears may take offense to the concept of eye for eye, tooth for tooth, it sounds, you know, extreme because we don't like this idea of punishment and judgment. Those are words which have uh, negative connotations in the English language. However, the scriptures tell us that we should give glory to God for his judgments and for his punishments. We as Christians should have a very different view of punishment, law, and order than the non-Christian because we worship a God who has given us his law and who will judge us based upon that law. And so in the nation of Israel, uh, in the Old Testament, the word, the Hebrew word Elohim, is at times used to refer to human judges. Now, if you know what the word Elohim means, it's a word that can also mean gods. Uh, and, And so the judges of Israel were given that that almost like a divine title, and the reason for it was is they were the ones that God had put in place to carry out His Word, to ensure that His law was kept, and to deliver punishments when His law was broken. And so, although this idea of eye for eye, tooth for a tooth, it sounds so extreme to us in our modern day, the, the most likely reality... And I say the most likely reality because this is the opinion of, of, of a lot of, of scholars of the ancient world, is that this was a means of limiting punishments so that punishments would not be too uh, extreme. So if someone takes out your eye, you wouldn't kill that person. It's eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The punishment should fit the crime. That, that was the purpose of the lex talionis. Uh, and, and so another ancient example of this same exact principle is found in the Code of Hammurabi. You may have, when you were in school, uh, learned about Hammurabi's Code. Uh, Hammurabi's Code actually predates the time of Moses by a few hundred years, but 
And so if you, and if you look at it, the same concept is actually found. It's not worded the same way, uh, you know, despite some people's attempts to say that, well, Moses was just copying this. But, but at any rate, so th- this is a law that we see that was given in place not only to limit punishments, uh, that they would not be too excessive, but specifically that this was something that was to be carried out by the magistrate, by the judges. This was not, I repeat, this was not God's design for how individuals behaved in their personal lives. Now, as you have been reminded repeatedly, in verse 17 of this chapter, Jesus said, do not think... That's a pretty strong word. He says, do not think, do not let it enter into your mind that I have come to abolish or to do away with the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That is the most, probably the most important verse in the fifth chapter of Matthew. I'm not kidding. Now, the reason why I emphasize this so strongly, Jesus, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, says, listen, before I get into this stuff, before I get into the content of what I have for you, before we get into the deeper stuff of my teaching, it is important that you recognize, as my hearers, I am not abolishing the Old Testament. Uh, I am not abolishing the Tanakh. I am not abolishing the Torah or the Ke'avim, okay? That, so... so The reason why I emphasize that so strongly is because so many people, uh, those to the more liberal side of things in theology, love to use Matthew chapter 5 to say that Jesus was disagreeing with or changing the Old Testament law. And verse 38 is the most common uh, verse where you will see this happening. The reason why they do that is because it's like they they just forget Jesus' warning don't, don't think that that's what I'm doing. So we have to, we have to hear Jesus' words. We have to listen to all of what Jesus says. So we need to, I think, pay very close attention to the fact that Jesus began this section by explicitly stating that changing or disagreeing with the Old Testament was not what he was doing. What we are going to find as we take a closer look at these next few verses is that it seems that at this point in time, the scribes and the Pharisees had abused, had misused this law uh, in applying it to retribution and retaliation in individual situations. Remember, the law was given for the magistrate, but it seems as though the Pharisees at this time were applying it to private affairs, where If someone wronged you, you would take it upon yourself to seek vengeance, uh, to seek revenge, which, by the way, is very much sinful human nature to want to do something like that. This kind of interpretation is wrong as it neglects the fact that this law, like I said, was given to the magistrate to govern and restrict punishments for civil offenses. It was never the intention of this law to serve as an excuse to take revenge on someone else, as even the Torah itself in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 says, 
You shall not take vengeance. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. I am the Lord. That is God's character being revealed to us. God says, I am the Lord, therefore you should not take vengeance in your own hands. You should not bear grudges against each other, but you should love your neighbor as you love yourself. I think Jesus at one time quoted that uh, too. This demonstrates for us that Jesus truly is the fulfillment of the law and the true interpreter thereof because Jesus' teaching is very, very consistent with Leviticus and Deuteronomy and these different things. And so verse 39, now that we have that as a groundwork, sort of a foundation, verse 39, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This, again, is another statement of Jesus that has caused much controversy, much disagreement over the centuries. Rather ironic uh, that it's an admonishment towards peace. Uh, and so I'm going to adopt the position that I think is very consistent that Jesus here is speaking hyperbolically or perhaps even metaphorically. We know, for instance, that when Jesus says things like, uh, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, we, we understand that that is not to be taken woodenly. Literally, we know that that is a hyperbolic figure of speech. Uh, in our last sermon, we, when Jesus says, I say to you, don't take an oath at all, when we look at the rest of Scripture, we realize that's it's a hyperbolic statement. It's a generalization. And, and, and so... Keeping in with consistency, we must recognize that Jesus' statements in these few verses are not to be taken so woodenly, so literally. We'll look into these things some more, but Jesus says in the first place, do not resist the one who is evil. What's important for us to note is that Jesus here is addressing individuals in the private affairs of their lives. Obviously, we recognize that Scripture teaches that the government, for instance, was ordained of God and has the responsibility to bear the sword against evildoers. Uh, so we know that government is actually responsible before God to resist evil. By the way, that means the government has a responsibility not to be evil, but to kiss the sun. Now, to help explain this some more, let us look at the first example Jesus gives in verse 39. He says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, there have been many throughout the ages who claim that this verse teaches a sort of idea of Christian pacifism. A past pacifism meaning, you know, non-violence, non-retaliation, that kind of thing. That never under any circumstance is a Christian to defend himself or his family, for that would be resisting evil. This, however, just cannot be Jesus' meaning. Because, for example, in Luke chapter 22, after the institution of the Lord's Supper, Jesus is telling the disciples about the fact that the world is going to turn against him. And Jesus says in verse 36, 
Let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. And then the disciples said to him, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he says to them, It is enough. So think about this for a moment. Jesus' disciples carried, had swords, which are weapons. Uh, as a matter of fact, Jesus told them to buy these weapons, told them to buy these swords. Now, we obviously recognize when we read the Gospels, when Jesus was going to be arrested, he rebuked Peter for using the sword. Uh, he, he told him not to use the sword because he was supposed to go uh, to fulfill the Scriptures, to accomplish redemption. He's supposed to go to the cross. But aside from that you know, particular specific instance, we must, as followers of Christ, recognize that, one, it is perfectly appropriate for us to keep and to bear weapons. Well, therefore, it follows that there may come a time when Peter was supposed to use that sword, when, when, when Christians ought to use weapons. If someone is going to you know, physically harm you, physically harm your family, a Christian should feel no reservation about taking the necessary precautions, even if, unfortunately, it involves the utilization of weapons or physical force to restrain the individual. If it would never be acceptable for a Christian to own weapons and to, at times, use them for self-defense, why did Jesus have his followers carry swords? It's an honest question. Well, then what are we to do with the fact that Jesus says if someone slaps you on your right cheek, you're to turn the other also? Well, the difficulty is very easily resolved when we recognize that the kind of slapping that Jesus is here describing had more to do with disrespecting or insulting someone than it did with like someone was going to physically bring harm to you. Now, that may sound strange, but let me explain. Notice, see, this is very important that we look at the details of Scripture. Notice that Jesus specifically says the right cheek. Now, that may be like, what's the point of that? Well, it's not an insignificant detail. That matters, and I'll explain why. Uh, In the ancient culture, and and this is even uh, in our own day, obviously, uh, people were predominantly right-handed, Uh, Your right hand is like your your main hand. Notice Jesus at times will say things like, if your right hand causes you to sin. He he says that because your right hand is the hand that you generally use for most uh, tasks, for most things. So think about this for a moment. If you are a right-handed person and you are going to slap someone on their right cheek, how would you do it? Well, you would do it with the back of your hand. Uh, it, to, to take your right hand and to slap someone in front of you on their right cheek, it would be a backhand. It would not be with the palm of your hand. Now, and obviously in our culture today, but more so in that culture, that was seen as a sign of just great and, and tremendous disrespect. If you look at the, the Mishnah, which is a collection of Jewish teachings from this time period, the fine for slapping someone with the back of your hand was double the fine for slapping someone with the palm of your hand. Now that's like, that may seem like a strange law for them to have put on the books, but the point of that is because if, you, if you're slapping someone with the back of your hand, 
taking your right hand and striking their right cheek, you were denigrating that individual. You were showing great disrespect. So when Jesus raises up this idea of slapping, someone slapping you on your right cheek, physical violence is not really the thing in view. Uh, you know, it's not a, the idea is not that this is a person who's trying to physically harm you or harm your family, in which case we would have to recognize it surely must be appropriate uh, to have some level of self-defense. The idea is that this is a person who is disrespecting you. And so you know what Jesus says? Turn the other cheek. He says to turn the other cheek. Now that is an incredibly hard lesson for us to learn. Because you see, our natural tendency is to want to pay back evil for evil. You know, well, if you disrespect me, I'm just going to disrespect you. You do this to me, I'm going to do that, that to you. And that, that is just the natural thing that, that, that comes not from the Spirit, but comes from the works of the flesh. We, we try, we have this desire to take revenge into our own hands. Now, people at Jesus' times, it seems, were trying to justify this behavior with the lex talionis, with eye for eye, saying like, hey, you do that to me, I do that to you, man. Eye for eye and a tooth for a tooth. Not recognizing that that law about eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was a provision for the magistrate, not for how individuals conduct themselves in the private affairs of their lives. The, that the Torah, the Leviticus 19 itself, says do not take vengeance. Do not even so much as bear a grudge against another. The greatest example, I think, and you would probably agree, for how people should respond to such disrespect uh, the greatest example of, of how this is to be done in the history of the world is seen very clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. Listen to the words of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 23. Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Now, when he says, to this you have been called, he's talking about suffering. Uh, you, you read the epistle of 1 Peter. We worked through it. Some of those sermons are available on our website, but you go through First Peter, and one of the main themes, one of the main concepts is this idea of suffering. You know, Paul, writing to the Philippians, says, to you it has been granted not only to believe, but to suffer for his name's sake. What does that mean? The same exact people that God grants to believe, God grants them to suffer. So, when you hear evangelists or when you hear pastors say, well, God has a wonderful plan for your life, remember that wonderful plan for your life is to be like Jesus, a man who had nowhere to lay his head, a man who suffered greatly in this life. It is never recorded in Scripture that he laughed, but it is recorded in Scripture that he wept. And so Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2 says, you have been called to suffering. You know, sometimes we think about, well, I just don't know what my calling is in, in life or in the ministry. Peter says, you have been called to suffering. Well, how does the Christian person 
face suffering? How does the Christian person endure suffering? Peter says, you've been called to suffering because Christ also suffered for you. Then he says, leaving you an example so that you might follow his steps. So think about that. Not only did Jesus suffer for us in the, sake of dying, in the sense of dying for our sins, but he also left us an example for how we are supposed to suffer. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, which is, by the way, a reference to Isaiah. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Peter says that when you suffer, do it like Jesus. When someone reviles you, don't revile back. When someone shouts at you and calls you names, disrespects you, don't, don't, don't do it back. Do what Jesus did, which was continue to trust in God, the one who judges justly, meaning that that evil, that sin, God is going to take care of it. God is going to take care of it. That is to be the general attitude and behavior of the Christian. Again, we're not talking about if there's a life-threatening situation. Uh, you know, Martin Lloyd-Jones gives an illustration of, you know, some drunken lunatic coming up to you and slapping you. And he's like, listen, you don't, in that situation, you don't literally, you know, okay, well, here's the other cheek. No. Grab him and, and stop him. And be like, you're, you're, hurt, you're hurting people. Don't, don't do that. We're not talking about physical violence. We're not talking about life-threatening situations where, you know, your family is in harm's way. We are not talking about, you know, situations where we may feel inclined. If you're in public and, and you see a man, you know, slap his wife, you don't just let that happen, Right? Uh, there are times when, you know, we're called in Scripture to look after the, those who are afflicted, uh, uh, to, to help those who are oppressed, to protect those who need protecting. What Jesus is saying is when someone disrespects you, when they slander your name, when they insult you, when they revile your character, when they treat you unjustly, Jesus says, let it be. Now, that is much easier said than it is done. It's not the easiest thing for us to do. In our flesh, we sort of long to exact vengeance on others. There is a sick and twisted part of our being that takes pleasure in making others feel bad when they've wronged us. Well, he hurt me. I just want to make him feel the same way. And that is because by nature we are self-centered, selfish individuals. But that is not how Christians live. In Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 17, Paul says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, Never avenge yourselves, never do it, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
you have nothing to prove. For example, by hurling back insults or quick comments or quick retorts when someone is insulting you. If someone's hollering at you, if someone's disrespecting you, the Christian response should not be to then yourself get all red and all worked up. Uh, It should not be to increase in agitation. The Christian response, the sanctified response, should be we should be able to calmly look that man in the eyes and say, I will pray for you. God bless you. That is how we are to respond. And, and, and Paul says, never avenge yourselves, leave it to the wrath of God. The Bible describes our God as a fiery furnace. God will exact justice on the evil that is done to you, Christians. You think about the early centuries of, of the Christian church and you think about the, our spiritual forefathers who were thrown to the lions. You know what the message is? Leave it to the wrath of God. He will do it. He will take care of it. You know what your responsibility is? Trust in God. Trust in God. When someone is disrespecting you, beloved, Jesus is going to say, and this we'll be talking about next week, about loving your enemies, praying for, those, for your enemies. Look at them and say, I, I, I will be praying for you. If, if you want to act in such an evil, such a sinful, vile way towards me, I just, I just want you to know I will be praying for you. May God have mercy on you. Now, responding in that kind of way, responding in a peaceful manner, does not mean that they are going to all of a sudden become peaceable. Uh, Paul says to strive to live at peace with all men so far as it lies within you. Now, you, uh, as, as a preacher, can I confess something? There is nothing that I want more than to be able to do open-heart surgery. When, 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 when I look at certain people, there's, in people in my life, there is nothing I would love more at times than to be able to just change their heart for them, to do the Holy Spirit's job for them. But we have to recognize, beloved, it's not what we're responsible for. We are responsible for faithfulness, and we are responsible to trusting uh, the results to God. So, so to strive to live at peace with all men so far as it lies within you. You cannot change someone else's heart. You can't do it. Don't try. Don't, don't try, you can, but you can do this. You can control your actions. Uh, an illustration, you know, when I minister to, to, to young people uh, and, and things like that, it seems like I have, to, I have to talk about this a lot. I remember working, ministering to a young lady who, who was telling me about struggles that she has with, with, with her parents and things like that, and I said, young lady, you need to understand something. The Bible, uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, it says, fathers do not provoke your children to wrath. And the fifth commandment is to honor your father. Now, in that relationship, your father has a, has a job he needs to do. You have a job you need to do, which is to honor him. Now, he may not fulfill his role, but that does not affect whether or not you should fulfill your role. Because you're not living for yourself. If you're a Christian, 
you're living for Jesus Christ. And so the question is not, well, what feels good to my flesh? The question is, what is good according to God's word as you humble yourself and bow down to submit to his authority? You can control your actions, and when you learn, like Jesus, not to repay evil for evil, but to continue entrusting yourself to him who judges justly, in that day, you will have glorified God. That's all that matters. Verse 40, Jesus says, And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Uh, to see again that we are dealing with, with a hyperbolic statement, we should recognize that in this ancient context, just how valuable someone's cloak is. So, you see, Jesus says your, your tunic, the tunic was the, the inner garment that you would wear, uh, and your cloak was your bigger, you know, outer garment. And in, in the ancient con- uh, world, your outer garment, your cloak, would oftentimes be what you slept in. Uh, it would be what kept you warm at night. Now, because of how important that was, the Old Testament law actually prohibited taking someone's cloak from them uh, because then, then it says, well, what is he going to have at night? And, and then God actually says, and if, if they cry to me, I will hear their cries. So this whole, that, that is like a very big deal, very important thing. And, and so... And so we recognize Jesus is here speaking hyperbolically because, you know, if someone takes your tunic and you give them your cloak, well, now you're naked. Jesus is not endorsing public indecency. The point of this, though, just, just because it's a metaphor, just because it's a hyperbole doesn't mean it doesn't mean something. So, so don't get me mistaken. The point is that the kind of attitude... The kind of spirit Christian people should have in these types of situations is we should just be ready to let go of certain things. For Christians should, in the first place, uh, learn not to become overtaken with a love for possessions and the things of this world, but should recognize that our ultimate hope is in the resurrection of the body on the last day, which no man can take away from the child of God. Now, that doesn't mean it's wrong to own things. That doesn't mean we shouldn't own things. Uh, it doesn't mean that you know, we don't build businesses, we don't set aside an inheritance for our children and things like that. But the point is that you do not have a sinful, unhealthy love and passion for money and for possessions. For as the Scriptures say, the love of money is the root of all evil. So, if we are able to have an appropriate mindset about our possessions, well, then if someone is seeking to take from you, there, there ought to be a, a willingness to let go that you may say, well, have some more. Have some more. Th- that kind of, because this, the secular world, the world that doesn't have God, if, if, you were, if, if you were a person who is an atheist, and you believe that all that existed was matter, uh, and that when you die, it's like they just throw some dirt on you and all is, is over with, that means all you have is the things in this world. All you have is your money. All you have is your possessions. All you have is pleasure. 
And so if that is all that you have, if someone tries to take that from you, it becomes way, 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 way worse. But if you're a Christian, you recognize that that's not all you have. That in Christ, all things are yours anyways. And your hope is in the resurrection of the body in the last day to dwell with God forever. So it, you should have this ability to just be able to just let go. Let go of certain things. And, and so because of the fact that, that the attitude we should have is so different than the attitude of the secular world, who their only hope is in the things of this world, when we respond to these situations, it will be so powerful that people will not be able to help but to see that there's something different about you. By the way, Christians are supposed to be different people, different than the world. One of the things about Christians is that we should respond to the trials and afflictions of life so differently that it bewilders people. We were talking about 1 Peter, and we were talking about Peter said you've been called to suffering and different things like that. Well, in 1 Peter chapter 3, and again, this is the context of persecution, Peter tells Christians to uh, honor Christ as Lord, uh, holy in the heart, and to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is within you. The idea is that you respond to suffering so utterly differently in such a unique way that people are literally going to come to you and ask, why? Why do you respond to your spouse's cancer like this? Why do you respond to, when, to someone trying to sue you like this? Why do you respond so hopeful? And Peter says, that's, if, if you're truly living like a Christian, that's going to happen. People are going to come and ask you those kinds of questions. So he says, be ready. Ready to explain to them. Because the idea is that there's just a, a glow and a hope about you that the rest of the world just doesn't have. And so someone, the example Jesus uses, if someone is suing you, you know, seeking to take from you, it doesn't mean that you, know, you cannot lawfully defend yourself in court. Uh, that, I mean, there, there were laws and stuff like that in, in the Old Testament as well. Uh, you know, otherwise, Jesus in this verse would just be giving you know, free reign to the evil people of this world to just trample underfoot the Christians and just take all they have. Uh, once again, if you do not recognize that Jesus is speaking hyperbolically, then Jesus' words in this passage are going to become literally crazy. But like I said, even though it's hyperbolic, there, there's still meaning here. There's still application here. If someone sues you, even if it's unjust, or even if they were wrong, and yet the judge rules in their favor, you should be prepared to hand over whatever it is with, with a smile on your face saying, God bless you. I, I promise you that will get people's attention. And surely someone's going to ask for a reason, for that hope that was within you. So be prepared to tell them about Jesus. Verse 41, Jesus says, And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. To understand this again, we need, we need to think about some historical context. Uh, as 
most of you are aware, Wesley knows this because he reads ancient historians for fun, which is really, really cool. It makes, makes for some good conversations, by the way, if you guys want to bother him after the service. As, as most of you are aware, at this particular period of time in the first century, the Jewish people were essentially under the thumb, uh, so to speak, of the Roman Empire. You know, they, they had certain freedoms to, you know, exercise their own worship, to have their own laws and their own courts and, and things like that, but still Rome was over top of them. Now, one of the things that most Jewish people absolutely hated was the fact that Roman soldiers could go up to virtually any Jew and impress upon them to help carry their stuff for approximately the equivalent of what would be a mile in our uh, vocabulary today. An example of this is actually in the New Testament. Uh, it's seen in the person of Simon of Cyrene, who was plucked up and, and made to go and to help Jesus carry his cross during the crucifixion of Christ. Now, again, if you know anything about Jewish people in the first century, uh, you know that there was a very strong tinge of nationalism. Uh, as a matter of fact, there were after the Maccabean revolt, there were, which is, by the way, where the practice of palm leaves comes from, that when, when you see Jesus riding in on a donkey and they're saying Hosanna with the palm leaves, that comes from uh, the Maccabean revolt. There were, after that, so many different people in the first century who claimed to be a Mashiach, a Messiah, and that they were going to lead Israel and set them free and overthrow the Roman captors because people of Israel really, really, really did not like that they were underneath Rome's thumb. And so in that sort of cultural atmosphere of the strong nationalism, think about when Jesus then tells his audience to go with them an extra mile. You can imagine how they would have just been completely floored because Jesus' message was so different, radically different than the false messiahs that had come before him. He was calling men to lay aside their pride. Now, that is a hefty task. He was calling men to lay aside their pride, their passions, their arrogance, and their vainglory. Because we do not live, brethren and sisters, we do not live to glorify ourselves, we live to glorify God. You know, it would be helpful to, at this point, remember what Jesus has earlier said in the Beatitudes when he talks about the man who is poor in spirit, the man who is mourning, the man who is meek. The Christian man is a man who is essentially through with himself. Not that he has you know, given up on life or, or you know, doing the things he's responsible for, but he's done living for his own personal satisfaction. He is done living for his own happiness. He's done living for his own name. He has given up on pride. His purpose now, to honor and glorify Jesus Christ in all that he does. And so he looks at his example. He looks at his master Christ and he sees that Christ came and Jesus said, I speak not of my own glory, but I speak on the glory of him who sent me. He sees that Jesus made himself a servant. 
And he realizes that too is how he must live. This then is the meaning when Jesus says to go the extra mile. You do it with a smile on your face. You say to that Roman soldier that I would be happy to help you. And when it's all finished, you shake the man's hand, you look at him and you say, God bless you. Please understand that the Christian life is a fundamentally different existence than that of the natural man. If you are, if a person who got saved at a later time in life, if you were converted when you were 30, please understand that the next 30 years of your life are completely different than the first 30. You're a different person now. The Bible says you are a new creation in Christ because God's grace changes us. It is powerful. That's why Jesus uses the illustration of being born again. We see this idea continue. In verse 42, Jesus says, Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, at first glance, some people think that verse 42 seems out of place. I think Calvin actually treats it as a, as a different section. As we're not necessarily dealing with you know, responding to overt wrong behavior or injustice or mistreatment, but rather what Jesus is admonishing us towards in verse 42 is just a general lifestyle of positive kindness and generosity. The first example we see in verse 42 is of one who begs from you. Now, uh, someone begging from you is, you know, it's not inherently like you're being wronged or you're being violated or mistreated. Uh, it can be wrong. We'll actually talk about that, but it's not inherently wrong. So in addition to the attitude of, you know, turning the other cheek, handing over the cloak, going the extra mile, Christ would just have his followers to live in just a generous way. You know, when, when we were talking about the idea, you know, of being ready to hand over your cloak, uh, one of the things that I said was we should not be overly in love with our possessions. It's that same attitude uh, of this idea of storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven, which will inspire us to be ready to give to the one who asks. I think it's just because of wisdom, I think it's necessary, however, that, that a caveat be made at this point. We all, we all recognize that there are people out there who are quote-unquote beggars, you know, you know, the panhandlers you see standing on the side of the exit ramps off the highway, who very often are not truly in need, but are actually exploiting people. Therefore, I think Christians ought to use discernment in this regard. I do not have a foolproof guideline for when we should or shouldn't give, because obviously, how do we truly know if we're dealing with someone who's truly in need or not? Uh, but the reason that I, that I make this qualifier at all is because of the fact that we as Christians cannot support sin. And 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Therefore, Jesus' word should only be applied in cases of, of people who are truly in need. If someone is able to provide for themselves, you do not enable their sin. Okay, you do not enable sin. There are numerous instances in both Old and New Testaments, in which you know, we are admonished 
to look after the orphan and the widow and those who are afflicted. If you, if you have you know, one of those Bible apps or uh, programs on your computer, what you should do tonight when you get home is you should just type in the word orphan and see the amount of verses that come up on your uh, screen where God is telling people to look after the orphan and, and the widow. Uh, you know, James, in James chapter 1, verse 27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So Christian people, we should, just, we should be those who help others, those who are generous, who take care of, of those who are in need. Uh, so, so that's what we need to be ready to do. But, but another reason to add, you know, to raise this qualifier about only giving to those who are truly in need, not enabling sin, is because there would be some who would try to use the words of Jesus here in order to support the, the welfare state in this country, which more often than not is abused by lazy people who would rather live off taxpayer dollars than work for a living. Least anyone should tell you that you as a Christian should support something which is so blatantly unrighteous. I point out that in the Scriptures, if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. In the Old Testament law, farmers were bidden to, you know, the wheat that had sort of fallen off on the wayside around, around the outskirts of, of their crops. The farmers were, were told not to gather that stuff up, but to leave it there for the poor to eat. But, but remember... The, the people would actually have to go and collect it for themselves. The government was not gathering it and, and redistributing it. The, the poor still had to actually do something uh, to eat. Now, wh- when I start talking like this, there may be some who would say, but, but if the government does not take care of the poor, who will? Might I suggest to you that Christian people should take it upon, we should take it upon ourselves to look after those who are in need uh, so that we can make sure that we are doing it from a biblical worldview. Psalm 37, verse 21 says, The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. Psalm 41, verse 1 says, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble the world delivers him. That, that is how we should be as Christians. We, we should be generous. We should be those who help those in need. In keeping with Christian principles, it should delight us to have such a kindness and a generosity about us that we would truly look after the poor. Because you see, when the government takes that job upon itself, rather than the church, the welfare state in this country demonstrates just how truly awful it can be, become. And so verse 42 then ends with Jesus saying, do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. In Deuteronomy 15, verses 7 and 8, the Lord says, if among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Psalm 112 verse 5 says, It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. In addition to being generous with our giving, we should be generous with our lending as well. 
Now, the, the immediate application being made, once again, is to private affairs between individuals. But when we get on this topic, we find perhaps another area where God's law serves to majorly critique our modern culture. Numerous places in the Torah, in the law, it instructs the people of Israel not to charge interest when giving out loans to your brothers or your fellow countrymen. This is seen in, in numerous passages. Again, if, if you, um, you know, have one of them Bible programs, type the word interest, and, you, and you'll see just so many verses come up. Uh, the only exception, and this is really interesting too, the only exception is that you were permitted to charge interest if you were making a loan to a foreigner. By the way, God's law actually dictates that foreigners are treated differently than citizens. Uh, that's interesting as well. But Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 19 through 20 says, You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest that the Lord your God, that Yahweh your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. I am not the only person in this room who recognizes just how crazy and outlandish some of the interest rates in this country are, especially in the housing market. And when you look to God's law and you see what it says about interest rates, you have to recognize that God surely hates that particular aspect of our economic system in this country. And so notice what the passage in Deuteronomy says. You may not charge your brother interest that Yahweh your God may bless you in all that you undertake in land you're entering to take possession of it. Think about that. God says, obey my law and I will bless your nation. I will bless your people. You see, God actually promises blessing if we obey his law in this regard. And so if you are wondering why there are so many problems in our economy today, why we have outrageous interest rates, why we have inflation, why we have so many problems in our economy today, it is because we are not honoring God's law. We as a people are not honoring God's law, not in regard to interest rates, not in regard to the insane levels of taxation and, and many other things as well. If we want God to bless us, we must obey Him. Jesus shows here once again continuity with the Old Testament by encouraging His, his disciples, encouraging His people to lend freely and, and generously. Once again, this is going to require you to care much more about your treasures in heaven than your treasures here on the earth. All in all, you know, when, when we give to the poor, when we are lending to those who are in need, the purpose of our doing this is not to, you know, so we look like good philanthropists and, and, and so we can impress our fellow creatures. The purpose of our doing this is to honor the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word and His law. And thus, as we do these things, we look our neighbor in the eye and we say, God bless you. 
It, it, it is all done in the name of God, my friends. And so, when we reflect back upon the teachings of Jesus Christ that we see in this passage, we recognize that the lifestyle Jesus would have us live is a completely unique, completely different character, mindset, attitude, uh, and, and worldview that Christian people are supposed to have. We are not those who seek to avenge ourselves, but instead we return kindness for evil. We extend grace We extend generosity to others as our Father in heaven has shown grace to us. Let us all strive by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit to truly live these things out in our daily affairs. Let us remember that this only comes by grace, and we must depend upon our Lord Jesus Christ for strength. When someone slaps our cheek, we turn the other also. When Jesus, in John chapter 18 was slapped, was struck by the high priest, he did not fight back but said, if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And then, do you know what Jesus did? He kept marching right towards the cross to fulfill the Scriptures and to accomplish our redemption, to allow himself to suffer for us. And so because Jesus did that, Because he rose from the dead, the promise is true to this very day. That as Jesus Christ went to the cross to die for sinners, he rose again. And therefore, all who shall call upon his name shall be saved. There is not one sinner who ever called upon the name of Jesus Christ who did not find him to be a perfect, complete holy, adequate Savior. He is seated at the right hand of God. He is able to save perfectly those who draw nigh unto God through Him since He ever lives to make intercession for them. If you call upon the name of Christ, if you believe in Christ, if you trust in Christ, you will be set free from your selfish and self-centered ways. And you will be able to live a radically unique, a radically different Life. You will be forgiven of your sins. You will be set free from the pain and punishment for sin, which is severe because sin is an evil thing that offends the holy God, and God is such that he pays back eye for eye and tooth for tooth. You must take refuge in Jesus Christ. Do so now and receive life eternal. Join me in a word of prayer. Father God, Father, we thank you for your law. Father, we thank you for your word. We, we thank you for the grace of the Holy Spirit who ministers these things to us. Lord, we ask that our worship tonight be pleasing, acceptable to you. We ask that our hearts would be changed, that we would be conformed to the image of your Son. We'd be sanctified by the truth of your word. God, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.